Often, policies attempt to mitigate plaguing issues like the lack of access to nutrition, education, credit and the like by easing resource constraints that perpetuate these phenomena. But how we perceive and value our own selves may be an important determinant of the uptake of these policies. If so, then can policies aimed at enhancing self-image improve people's choices and the consequent outcomes? And can such interventions be effective in the case of severely marginalized communities where the extent of self-distortion is very high? Today, we have with us Anandi Mani, Professor of Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government, University of Oxford, who will answer these questions through a conversation with Avantika Prabhakar, a PhD student at University of Virginia. Hello and welcome to the BTS of Economics Research, Season 1, a brand new podcast brought to you by Women in Econ and Policy. The idea of this podcast was born to launch a platform shedding light on the experiences of female development researchers. In every episode, we will pick a research study and unpack its learnings, challenges and more through a conversation with one of the lead women principal investigators on the project. In this episode, we will go behind the scenes of the research paper titled Sex Workers, Stigma and Self-Image Evidence from Kolkata Brothels, authored by Sayantan Ghoshal, Smarajit Jana, Anandi Mani, Sandeep Mitra, and Sanchari Roy. The paper studies the effect of a psychological intervention aimed at enhancing the self-image of female sex workers in Kolkata. To do so, the authors conducted a randomized field experiment across brothels in three localities of Kolkata where a partner NGO called Durbar conducted eight workshops aimed at reshaping self-image for those in the treatment group. The authors then evaluated both short-term and medium-term effects of this training. They found that the training improved the participants' self-image and led to better health and financial outcomes. To discuss this paper, we are joined by Avantika Prabhakar, who will be interviewing one of the authors of this paper, Anandi Mani. So what are we waiting for? Let's dive right into the episode. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Behind the Scenes of Econ Research, a podcast which is organized by Women in Economics and Policy. My name is Avantika and today I will be talking to Dr. Anandi Mani, who is a lead PI on the paper Sex Workers Stigma and Self-Image, Evidence from Kolkata Brothels. Anandi, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Avantika. It's very nice to be here. Okay, so I'm just going to get started. My first question has to do with the origins of this paper and how you kind of got started on this specific research question. So how did you kind of end up working on this idea of self-image and how that, to paraphrase from the paper, like how that plays a role in determining choices among the poor and marginalized. And then related to that, like how did you kind of pick this particular population or community of sex workers to work with? 
So by the time I got into this project, I uh, had been doing you know work as a development economist for a while and uh, sort of looking at questions of public good provisions, for instance, and you know uh, around social policy, etc. And I guess the the thing that struck me was that with all the uh, work that was going on, everything within economics, particularly, was I guess not surprisingly, given that we're economists, we don't focus on people's inner lives so much. But at the end of the day, if you're interested an effective policy and a lot of the work was happening around you know mitigating a, a whole bunch of what I would like to call external constraints in terms of whether it's lack of credit or lack of information, uh, you know, other resources, etc., for for people who are uh, poor. But, you know, at the same time, there were all these pieces of evidence showing that people are not accessing programs or not using it to their best advantage and other kinds of ways in which uh, people who are poor, their behaviors were almost in some sense self-defeating, you know, not vaccinated their children, for instance, or washing hands before they eat, all these sorts of behaviors. And as a as, as a sort of development researcher who is at the end of the day interested in, you know, once you mitigate these constraints, you want it to work for people. You want them to be able to change their lives. I was sort of inclined to ask the question, why? Why don't we see these changes in behaviors? And that's where I felt that just looking at their external, i.e. resource constraints was not enough, that we also needed to understand better something about you know uh, the, their way of thinking what was sort of going on in their head their sort of personal narratives in terms of how they see themselves or what they're entitled to in life you know i remember uh, 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 somebody who used to work um, as a maid in in my mom's house saying you know talking about getting beaten by her husband and she would say mera manad nahi marega to kon marega as in if my husband doesn't beat me then who will right so that sense of you know what do i deserve in life, who am I? That that self narrative and how it is shaping the choices that people make and what they think they are they deserve in life, uh, you know, might have a role to play in what they reach out for and what resources they access. So I'm, you know, I, re- I had really gotten into this space of trying to understand uh, sort of people's internal constraints that was keeping holding them back in terms of being more empowered, you know, or, or uh, making a better life for themselves. And that's kind of what got me into this area and in parallel I had been working on another project which was sort of looking at the sort of the cognitive effects uh, of uh, being poor and in this project I sort of wanted to look non-cognitive dimension which is sort of the psychological constraints and so when I thought about the psychological constraints I felt that the, the single biggest thing that's different for a poor person, for somebody who is marginalized, is that sense of being unimportant or is being invisible, being ignored by others or, you know, sometimes even being disrespected. And I wanted to look at how this disrespect was creating some internal constraints for themselves. And that's what got me into uh, this project. And in terms of sex workers as a sample, I think once I fixated on this question of lack of respect, I felt that this was a uh, natural sort of sample of people that suggested itself because as we all know, no matter which society we are in, we speak of uh, sex workers are treated with very little respect. And so if I wanted to study the effects of stigma and how that affected their uh, people's choices and what kind of internal constraints that imposed, I felt sex workers were um, a good place to uh, study that question. Okay. 
All right, so from the origins of this question to actually kind of implementing the field, the field research, we all know that the importance of kind of finding the, the right implementing partner. Um, in your case, that happened to be the NGO Darbar. So can you tell us a little bit about what went into kind of finding this NGO to work with and how you sort of managed that relationship? Yeah, so... So like I just said, I was sort of interested in distinguishing between, uh, you know, if I had to put a pithy label to what I said in the previous question in terms of external constraints, i.e. material resources versus internal or sort of psychological uh, constraints. And so once we decided that we wanted to focus on this thing of lack of respect, we were looking for people uh, as, as a sample to study, as a population to study, people who are in some sense stigmatized. So, you know, you're either invisible, you're ignored, or you're even uh, despised or reviled, or people have contempt for you. So we, we sort of wanted to study the stigmatized aspect of being poor and marginalized. And once we sort of focused on that question, then the natural, you know, one very easy population that we thought would, would fit the bill in terms of a group to study would be sex workers. And that is sort of because, you know, the stigma in the Indian context is at so many levels. It's not just that, that they are poor, it's also that they are women and, you know, the work they do is something which is um, reviled in society. So uh, I think all of that kind of brought us to sex workers as being the group that we should uh, try to focus our study on. And the uh, as it turned out, there are a, a few collaborators on the project who are from Kolkata. And, and we, we were aware uh, Durbar, which is the organization that we worked with, had, has done some pioneering work in this space. And so they became a natural focal point for us in terms of starting a conversation and approaching them to collaborate with us. So that's how we got into, you know, from stigma took us to sex workers and sex workers took us to Durbar in terms of whom we would uh, try to collaborate with. I see. Having done fieldwork myself, and which I think a large part of our audience could also probably relate to, it's it's very important to find an NGO that is easier to work with. Um, and one of the main problems that we face in terms of, of doing this is aligning research and program priorities. Did you and did your team face this problem? And if you did, how did you deal with this? Yeah, I would say that for us in this particular context, this was not a very big challenge in the sense that we didn't feel that um, there was this uh, trade-off between program priorities and our research for a few reasons. I think one is that uh, Dr. Jana, who was the, uh, the founder of uh, Durbar, whom we worked with, uh, was an epidemiologist by training. And so he already had a more sort of scientific bent, I should say. In fact, he had done a bunch of research collaborations with people working in public health, even before we um, started to collaborate with him. So I think that he understood well the way that research operates, which was something that made it easier. That was one. And the second thing is that our specific intervention is kind of a small piece of the overall work that Durbar does. So it's the sort of, sort of the psychological training intervention is something that they did in a slightly different format, I should uh, add, but they were doing it before, but it's a small piece of what they do. I think the pieces that uh, of, of their work, which are larger, 
for which we did use the data are around the savings cooperative bank and all the public sort of the health um, uh, facilities that they provide for their members, etc. And those were not directly part of our intervention. So in that sense, it did not pose a challenge. That's heartening to know because I think um, sometimes we face a lot of problems. So it's nice to know that there are partners out there who are easier to work with. Indeed. Um, so moving on um, a little bit from the practical implementation aspects, just to talk a little bit about, you know, the genesis of the analysis. How did you think about um, the outcomes that you wanted to measure? So in the paper, you focus a lot on the financial um, aspects and health outcomes. How did you, like, what was the thinking that went behind kind of coming up with these outcomes that you thought would be the ones to, to test and to measure as a result of, of the program? Sure. So I think that one thing that economists as a whole are very focused on, and I think uh, there are good reasons for this, uh, which we can talk about in some more detail, uh, is that we like outcomes which we would think of as being objective, right? Kind of objectively measurable. And I think particularly when we are talking about an intervention, which is psychological, um, having objective measures uh, can be a challenge, but it's actually particularly important. We do not want um, outcomes which are only self-reported, you know, for one important reason. For instance, uh, the word that we use is sort of what we call expert experimented demand effects, right? We don't want our respondents to be sort of thinking or imagining what kind of answers we are expecting and try to give answers which are pleasing to us as, uh, as researchers. And um, here, in fact, we had to make sure that when we did our surveys, for instance, that we we had we clearly explained to the participants that we were not part of Durbar. You know, this was an important uh, sort of separation to create so that we uh, were not conflated with the organization and that we didn't want just to get answers which they thought uh, we would like to hear. They're being part of Durbar. So that was one key motivation in coming up with what we thought were objective measures. And I think once we said we want objective measures, we wanted to pick things which we thought were particularly important for uh, the sample of people we were studying. Um, now, finances were one obvious area. And we uh, basically wanted to see if we could pick measures where, given the sort of the theoretical backdrop that we were bringing to this project, which I can go into in detail in a little while, but given the theoretical background we were bringing to this project, we wanted things where if these people had a better self-image, if they had a better narrative about themselves, would that be a motivator to put in effort, which wouldn't pay off immediately, but they would feel that it was worth doing. And so that's why we picked finances as one such thing, because savings is something you do slowly. You do it bit by bit to accumulate enough. So you know, that would be one example of that. And even health would be another example of that, because you have to, it's not that you eat well or you sort of get your preventive checkups for in the case of the sample of sex workers. It's not that you do it as a one-off. It is something that you have to keep doing regularly to make sure in the longer term that you are uh, you know, in good health. 
And so those were the motivations which made us pick these two outcomes. And I think the, the, the third equally important thing was that, A, this was something natural in this setting. It was not some very quaint or strange outcome for these people. It had to feel um, yeah. natural. And I think particularly for sex workers, these are, of course, finances are, and health are important for everybody, but they're particularly important for sex workers for two reasons. One is that unlike a standard household where there is a man earning, uh, you know, in India, for instance, as we know, labor force participation for women is, is low. Most of the earners would be men, whereas for these women, they had to be self-reliant, so their finances were particularly important. And the health, of course, for them was very important, uh, is very important, uh, given that this is the their livelihood. If they are not uh, uh, in, in a state of good health, they can't be carrying on the work they do. So these were sort of some of the motivations for picking these outcomes were based on uh, what would uh, be rigorous from a research point of view, but equally the uh, they were picked based on what we think is important for this sample that we were studying, and also the theory the theory that we brought to to the project, which I can uh, go into in a little bit of detail. Okay. Moving on to a little bit about the field experiences that you had uh, doing this study. A lot of times what happens is that when we start to pilot questionnaires or, or anything related to the intervention, we realize that maybe something we're doing is wrong or, or maybe not entirely appropriate. And then we kind of end up adapting a lot of uh, our work while we're doing these pilots. Did your team go through this as well? So specifically um, as you did pilots or, you know, did discussions with, with the sex workers or with Darbar, how much uh, of the intervention did you kind of end up adapting over, over the time period before you actually implemented it? Yeah. So I think that the, you know, not, not all of what we did in the pilots went into the paper, I should say, but I think the type of things that we tried out when we were piloting and where we had to do a fair bit of refinement was we, for instance, tried to present some hypothetical scenarios in the pilots for these women to get a sense of what were the kind of situations with which people uh, like you and I would not think twice about, but which would not be the same for these women. So, for instance, you know, things around and, and coming up with those scenarios was something which took us a while because we were trying to understand uh, the triggers for feeling uncomfortable, feeling small, feeling diminished. And, you know, it, it was sort of surprising to us. So I think that, that and we gained some insights in the process of uh, doing those uh, kind of uh, hypothetical exercises. So, for example, interactions with the police, right, that would, it would be something very, very stressful for these people because they even though sex work is legal in India um, you know these women not all of them know it many of them are very poor have very low levels of education and you know sort of political awareness of their rights and so presenting them with these hypothetical scenarios interacting with the police would be something which would be very stressful for them you and I you know if we need for example if we have kids and we need uh, family help we don't feel uncomfortable about asking our parents or our family about for to come over and look after uh, our kids whereas um, some of these women you know don't like to even uh, divulge to their family members that they uh, work in this space so this was something which uh, was kind of eye-opening for us and I have to say that 
the amount of revisions to the survey questionnaires we had to do uh, was actually a little bit minimized for us precisely because we uh, had Dr. Jana to uh, vet the questions by, and this was hugely helpful. Like for example, including questions on body language, right? Which is something that uh, we, we, we uh, or, or telling the surveyors to note these things. Was not is not something that we might have otherwise thought of. And the exact phrasing of the question, how does it feel to be a fallen woman, right? This is not something that I, as a sort of, you know, as a researcher would find politically correct to, to use, but you, we could really lean on him on, uh, for, for his judgment in terms of what terms they would understand and how they would uh, perceive uh, the way the question was being posed. So I think doing the hypothetical exercises was hugely helpful to give, it, give us an understanding and appreciation for how ordinary circumstances that you and I wouldn't think of could be seen as threatening for these women. But having Dr. Jana on board as a sounding board to vet these questions by uh, was a very, very uh, instructive process. The one thing I should say also that we adapted for the Durbar uh, intervention because they used to do this as a two-day workshop for the women. And we proposed to them that it may be better to spread it over eight weeks with shorter sessions, like an hour session. And I think that was uh, helpful because it gave the women uh, more space and time to think and reflect on the discussions that happened as part of this uh, training workshop. That was, I think, a valuable and important adaptation that we suggested to Dr. Jana just as much as we got input from him for the design of the uh, survey and the questionnaire. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about um, your experience during the eight weeks of, of implementation of this program. Um, during this time, did you um, face any surprises or find unexpected um, results from your interactions with the participants um, or your field coordinators or, or with the NGO? Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, we were coming into this as economists evaluating an intervention, and we sort of fully respected that the content of the intervention itself was something purely psychological, which is not our domain of expertise. And equally, just given the sort of that already that the participants that we were dealing with were people who uh, have a low self-image to begin with, that is you know, the whole motivation for the training, uh, we, the foundation, Durbar, uh, was uh, particular, and I think wisely so, to have it being implemented by people who had a lot of contextual experience and who were really trust trusted by the participants and whom they could relate to. So they had handpicked a bunch of people who fit that bill within their organization. So in terms of the implementation itself, I think it was quite smooth. We didn't have to do any revisions because they were implementing something which they understood well to do. In terms of surprise, I think the, the one thing I can say is uh, just over the course of those eight weeks, kind of seeing that, you know, this is something very subtle. It's not necessarily picked up in the metrics, but it's something visual. And so it's something which has stayed with me that the sort of change in the body language of these women 
And I think that is something, you know, being willing and able to sort of look you in the eye when they speak to you. I think those subtle changes are are hard to capture in in a survey question, but that is something you see when you implement it on the field. Um, I think this was a pleasant surprise, I should say. And, you know, I think, uh, like, for example, in the first session, uh, when we asked them questions like, who do you think has the right to dream? You know, what do they dream about? And even this, I think that a, a lot of these women, nobody has ever given them the space to even consider these questions. And just witnessing them respond to that and uh, sort of to see the, the gradual uh, shift in their behavior. And, uh, you know, upon reflecting on these questions is something really very pleasantly surprising to me. So, yes. That's, again, a very positive takeaway. Just related to this, though, um, you were working in a sensitive setting. Because of that, were there any, any roadblocks that you faced um, during implementation of the project in the field? Yes. How did you how did yeah. you tackle these? If you did, yeah. So so I think that uh, as you put it, you know, this is a sort of a, a sensitive data, right? In some sense, and so I think that there were multiple layers that we had to negotiate here. So, for instance, the at the end of the day, and this is a um, issue that uh, a lot of NGOs who work with sex workers face. Many different ones have very different philosophies. So, for instance, Durbar does not try to get women out of the the uh, sort of sex worker trade. Rather, they are trying to empower them within the current context itself. There are other NGOs who have a very different approach and their emphasis is on getting people out of this profession, for instance. And, uh, you know, given our context and the fact that Durbar does not try to um, get people out of the sex trade, I think this was something important in terms of being able to uh, negotiate with the brothels and the brothel uh, madams, as they call them, the, the, you know, the women who headed these uh, organizations, these uh, places where their sex workers live and work. Because otherwise, when we came in as outsiders, inherently their tendency would be to be very suspicious of us and you know whether we were trying to out them in any way and all of that sort of thing. So I think uh, this was a very tricky thing for us to negotiate and having Durbar and and Durbar's reputation as not being an NGO, which is trying to sort of kill the business that these uh, brothel owners had. I think that was a a, a tricky thing for us to negotiate. That was one thing. Um, And then there were, uh, you know, uh, the other, the next layer was in terms of uh, building trust with the women whom we were surveying. After all, we are asking sort of questions which are very, for many people, private, you know, very sensitive. Even if we were uh, approaching it with some sense of, uh, you know, a researcher's mindset, these women are uh, have internalized to some degree uh, the, the lack of respect that uh, people from mainstream society interact with them. So building their trust is some, where they had the space and the comfort to talk was something which took a little bit of, um, you know, effort. So, you know, we, we had to give them a little time and for example, uh, give, uh, you know, give them a little bit of food, you know, over a, a, a sort of a tea and snacks and things like that to kind of make them relax a little bit and, and feel comfortable to give us answers, which we could then treat as being good quality, authentic answers. I think this was another um, layer to negotiate. 
And, you know, practically speaking, it was also uh, sometimes hard to track them down because, you know, given that uh, many of them change their names quite often, you know, they have kind of moved away from their houses and, you know, I guess they're trying to change their identities because they are um, they don't want some people to know that they're doing this and so on. So sometimes tracking them was also a, uh, you know, a, a challenge. And this was another thing that uh, meant we had to put in more uh, legwork on the ground to, to mm -hmm. make sure that we were uh, collecting uh, as much data as we could gather and track all our participants. So these were sort of a, you know, a bunch of things that we, we faced. And also, you know, in terms of the admin level data that we, we used, for instance, for, for health, because it was uh, health related information, we couldn't in the last round, for instance, get uh, be able to track all the identify the data in terms of preventive health checkup visits at the individual level. We knew the addresses of the uh, uh, women who's, you know, from the administrative roster, so we could match it to the brothels, but not necessarily at the individual level. So these were some of the challenges we had in terms of this particular project. Some of these may have been and are also prevalent in other settings, but uh, negotiating both the politics with the brothel owners as well as uh, building trust with the uh, individual participants was, uh, I think, had an added layer of complexity given our setting. So going back to, you know, the theory and the outcomes when you did your analysis, uh, the paper talks about this additional hidden positive outcome of preventive health measures. Uh, yeah. taken by treated respondents. Uh, I think we see an average of nine percentage points higher um, yeah. uh, take up in, in the treated area. So what was um, kind of seen as the reason or the mechanism for, for this kind of behavioral change, especially since this, this, this particular uh, outcome was not part of the program? Yeah. Um, so just a bit of background here, which I think is relevant to mention. Mm -hmm. You know, we uh, in in the in the eight sessions that we had in the program, uh, the first two were sort of talking about, like I said, you know, we started with this the conversation with, you know, uh, who has the right to dream and what are your dreams and you know whether they if they even let themselves dream. That was sort of where it started, and this label of sex worker and much less was you know is a is a positive one relative to other more unflattering terms that people often use for sex workers in this context or, or you know in many contexts I should say and so I think that the health uh, issue that you bring up it was not something which was covered in any of the eight sessions that we included so we had a session on violence we had something on savings we had on sort of the, their children and their future and we had started with you know not whether they could reimagine themselves and reshape their personal narrative in terms of, you know, instead of calling themselves, uh, you know, all those unflattering names, whether they could think of themselves as good people because uh, they were doing an honest day's work, you know, could they, how would they compare themselves to a thief, for instance? We had all these sessions, but we did not have one on health. And the reason we didn't do one on health as part of this is because Durbar had already been working. In fact, that was the uh, way that the whole program originated. They had already been doing work around health and condom use, et cetera. So the awareness of HIV and all of these issues is quite high in this uh, area. And that's why we had not included health as one of the uh, intervention sessions. But the reason we still chose health and preventive health as, a, as an outcome measure is in some sense, 
it fits very much with the, the uh, sort of the theory which was informing um, our work. And the theory I'm alluding to here is what's called uh, the self-affirmation literature, which comes from psychology. So people like Claude Steele, um, uh, you know, a social psychologist at Stanford, have worked in, in this area. And the idea here is that everybody likes to think of themselves as being adequately moral and competent right adequately in the sense of being good enough it's not that they they have to be at a superlative level but only when people feel that they are good enough both in the moral dimension as well as on the competence dimension then they feel more motivated to put in effort and if that's when they don't have that sense of adequately being good enough, when their self-worth, some minimal level of self-worth is not there, then every little sort of other everyday activity can be seen as a threat, as being as something which will kind of show them up to be lacking in some way. And so we think that the two outcomes that we picked, you mentioned health, but I think equally the savings, it is our idea here was that if people don't feel that they are moral enough, if they don't feel they're competent enough, and when people are stigmatized, they feel that a lot, then they don't feel motivated to put in effort. And both these outcomes, be it health or be it savings, it is something where you have to have the confidence, you have to feel good enough about your, your yourself to be putting in effort in the short term. And the good outcome that you are seeking, whether it is good health or whether it's enough of a savings balance, that is something which comes only through uh, sort of repeated and persistent effort, right? And But you have to feel motivated enough to, uh, to, to take that effort. And so this was how the theory of self-affirmation is kind of what informed our uh, choice of the intervention, as well as the two outcomes that we, we decided to pick. And, you know, even, and I think in a way, not having had health as part of our intervention uh, content made our results even more striking because it kind of, it demonstrates that it was not the specific fact that we talked about the savings, which made them change their savings behavior, but it is more the how the shift in self-perception, which came from the initial foundational sessions, where we compared them to a thief and how they were better, where we asked them whether they could think of themselves as an entertainment worker, for instance, which made them feel better about themselves, recast their image in a more positive light, and that that is what then motivated to change their behavior, be it in health or be it in the uh, savings behavior. Something more optimistic about the future and so worth putting in effort for. Okay, so to elaborate on the saving choice results that you observe, you also talked about alternative explanations like nudging or financial literacy and peer effects that could also determine um, some of these results. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about these alternative theories of change um, and what were you know, the most probable ones that you thought about and, and how does one go about ruling these out when, when doing research like this? Sure. I think that the nudging thing in our context would be something uh, more along the lines of uh, the experimental demand that I referred to earlier. Experimental demand as in 
if they think that the experimenter wants them to give certain answers, will they give those kind of answers, right? So the simple way, we, we tried to rule that out in a bunch of ways. The most important of those was, like I said, that we had objective measures, which were not just um, uh, something which is self-reported. So this was one uh, way of doing it. The second thing, I think the distinction between the health and the savings that we had one within the program and that we didn't have the other. I think this is another way of dealing with this kind of nudging, whether, you know, this worry that we may have been nudging them to make certain choices. And, you know, because... For example, some uh, referees, when we had uh, an early version of the paper, were worried that we stressed the importance of savings much more for the people who were in our treatment group. And so, you know, we were kind of nudging them more to, to make a more future-oriented savings choices by putting their money in a fixed deposit. So this worry may have been, been there. But the fact that then we had these health outcomes, which were not mentioned anywhere during the program, and that we still saw a change in their preventive health behavior, even though the sort of the baseline levels of preventive health uh, were uh, sort of uh, checkups, etc., were quite high. I think that was another thing which allayed this concern about us being the ones nudging them towards the, uh, the particular types of behavior. That was the second one. And then the third, I, I, I would say, in terms of the nudging uh, being a concern, is that we didn't just look at outcomes in the short term where they are giving us responses face to face and during the eight weeks of the program, choosing whether they want to put their money into the current account or the fixed deposit account. We looked at administrative data, which we gathered, you know, one and a half years after the program was over. And I think that was another way to allay this nudging concern, because once we are over and the program is over, these people don't have to deal with us. They don't have to please us at all. And so if we still saw a difference in their behavior, this was, again, uh, ruling out the nudge type of concern that uh, people would have. So all that is on the nudging bit. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the financial literacy, this would apply specifically to the savings uh, outcomes. And the worry here could have been that is it the case that uh, in the process of discussing savings, that we somehow helped these women who were not very financially savvy, whether we helped them understand how the rates of return were different, uh, you know, in the um, in, in the fixed deposit versus the current account, for instance, and whether that was the factor that led them to uh, put more money in the in the fixed deposit account. And the way we got around that issue was that we uh, basically tried to provide exactly the same information on their different rates of return, et cetera, to both the women in the control group and in the treatment group. And just as the women in the uh, treatment group came in every week uh, for the sessions, we had the women in the control group as well coming in every week to uh, get these, uh, you know, the, the weekly amount, which was about 100 rupees, and to choose in which option they wanted to put it. So we tried to keep it as symmetric as possible to rule out financial literacy or differences in that being the factor which was explaining our savings results. And the last one, in terms of peer effects, we were able to look at this question just given how we had uh, done the randomization in our context. So basically, our randomization was at the level of the brothel. 
Uh, so entire brothels were in the treatment or the control, but we sort of used 35 years as being the cutoff age for including women in our program. Um, and as a result, we had random variation across different uh, brothels in terms of the fraction of women who took part in our program at all. And because we had this random variation, we were able to get one measure uh, you know, this is not the only way, I guess, but we were able to get one clean measure of uh, whether having more women from your brothel uh, who took part in this program, whether you, we saw different effects when there were more women from your brothel who took part as opposed to fewer women. And um, as it turns out, in our case, we didn't see any peer effects of that kind. Although I should say that in the administrative data, which we got longer term, I would say that there seemed to have been uh, fairly strong spillover effects uh, in terms of preventive health behavior if the uh, women who took part in our treatment were part of the, uh, who lived in the same brothel. But overall, we did not find any uh, peer effects using a clean measure, as I just described a minute ago. So seeing the success of this study, um, are you yeah. aware of any attempt to replicate these findings, um, specifically these behavioral outcomes within or even outside of India? You know, it's funny you should ask that because um, honestly, the last conversation we had uh, I where I uh, saw Dr. Jana, uh, not in person, but uh, online was actually earlier uh, this year in, in uh, March where we were actually um, having a call, all of us on the project, about uh, whether we could uh, expand this um, you know, intervention by trying to implement similar things in other countries. So we had a few countries in mind, Vietnam, in you know, Asia, another one in uh, Africa, et cetera. And un unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, he passed away in May from COVID. But uh, we are very much still hoping to try and uh, replicate this work, or if not exactly replicate, do versions of this in other uh, countries as well. And I should say that as in, you know, in the course of doing this project and reading some of the literature in this area, I feel quite uh, proud to, to realize that the, the kind of model that Durbar has um, uh, created in terms of you know, empowering sex workers, making them aware of their rights, is, is something which is, is quite pioneering work. You know, I have read about it in, for example, the, you know, the Economist magazine has a thing that they put out called 1843. That's the name of a, a, a periodical they come up with. And I read about some other um, person who was a sex worker from Bangladesh who came and participated in the Durbar program. And it, it kind of made me feel proud as an Indian. It was something which was um, uh, surprising that the, the model in terms of how to rehabilitate sex workers and taking into account all the public health uh, implications of uh, how sex workers are treated, that, that India has a, a pioneering model in this space is something that I, uh, I, I felt quite proud to discover. So we are very much hoping to uh, try and implement this kind of a design elsewhere as well. And uh, we are also talking to Durbar about uh, other marginalized groups whom uh, they have been working with now over the last few years. So for instance, rag pickers, is another group that they work with. Domestic uh, workers is another group that they work with. And uh, we are trying to uh, see how uh, an adapted version of the kind of intervention we studied here uh, that might be tried out for these other uh, populations. That's what we are in the process of trying to figure out. Okay, so suppose 
uh, we want to replicate this kind of study with other kinds of stigmatized communities. Um, how do you think the choice of outcome variables should change? Sure. So I think that uh, some of it is, of course, going to be universal, like, you know, finances is something which would apply to, I don't know, rag pickers, for instance, or domestic workers. So some of these would be universal, but some of these may be very particular to uh, sex workers, right? I mean, the stigma dimension um, and the sort of the very acute social stigma is something that sex workers in particular face. It is not something that uh, a rag picker may face. So, for example, earlier when I was telling you about how a a sex worker may not want her mother or her extended family to know that she's doing this, you know, it, there isn't the same level of shame that a rag picker or a, um, you know, domestic maid uh, has to has to undergo. So I think some outcomes will be universal, like the finances, some will be particular to sex workers, and I'm, but I'm sure there will be others which are uh, then relevant to that context, depending on uh, which sample we're studying. So are there any policy lessons that we can derive from this study, especially considering that this was um, a purely psychological intervention, which is, I guess, somewhat different from the usual interventions that policymakers um, are thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that I have been very pleasantly surprised, not just that we had results, but that we had results which were not just from the short term, but which were there 15 months after the program, 21 months after the program in the case of the health results. And this is typically a big concern with psychological interventions because people think that all these effects can be very short-lived. Having said that, I should also in the same breath mention that the, you know, the self-affirmation literature talks about how when we are able to change people's self-narrative and how they perceive themselves, this could, you know, this could, uh, there, there have been other studies within psychology which show that these can have long-lasting effects. So on the one hand, as an economist, I was surprised by this, but uh, the, the, the theory that we are sort of operating uh, on, so that undergirds this work, it actually mentions this point that this can be sort of be a pivotal shift moment. And I think that this is something that we, as at the end of the day, people who are interested in policies that work on the ground, I think that we should take these results seriously and we need to uh, incorporate this more in um, uh, sort of a, a lot of the social policy programs, social safety net programs that are implemented. I think it's, um, you know, uh, the, I have that quote in the paper from Albert Bandura where he says just, you know, simply making uh, resources available to people, expecting that they're going to take it up, ignoring the psychosocial dimension of these um, interventions is, is something that we do at our own peril. And more importantly, if we are able to, when we, when we hand out any material support to people, you know, if we can do that with respect, if we can do that keeping people's dignity impact, I think the money, the taxpayer money that goes into that will probably go a longer way because I think it's it makes people feel much better and they access and you utilize those resources much better uh, when the the handout or the, the amount of money comes with also a dose of respect that they as individuals, as human beings deserve. So I think that thinking harder about uh, how to in incorporate that into the way we do social policy is something which is really worthwhile. 
I have been pleasantly surprised by these results and uh, me and my co-authors are currently thinking of that we would actually do another longer term tracking now that it's been you know, um, more than seven, eight years since we um, implemented the original program. We are thinking of studying these, uh, whether the longer term psychological effects do persist. And I think this is something to take seriously, both from an economic argument, as in, you know, that the resources may be better utilized, and also from a human dimension, because everybody deserves respect. So when we're working in the field um, with different kinds of populations and communities, we, we always go in with certain priors uh, about the realities of, of what we're doing. Did you have any priors that were broken as a result of this study? Yeah. And as a result of your interactions? Yeah. So, you know, to be honest with you, till I started on this study, I have never known somebody uh, from this community. And I think uh, the uh, one of the stories I can share here is sort of from one of my first visits to uh, the Durbar offices. And uh, Dr. Jana had arranged for um, some of the sex workers to come and you know talk to us. And uh, one of the women who was talking to me was somebody who uh, whose mother had been a sex worker and she had gone to a regular school, etc. I mean, she was not a young person anymore. She must have been in her uh, 40s or late 30s or 40s, I imagine. But I remember chatting to her about what it was like to be in a regular school and w- what that felt like. And uh, knowing that, you know, she came from a sex worker background. And I remember her telling me about how, you know, she had friends at school, but unlike the other girls, she she kind of felt hesitant to ever ask any of her friends to come home because she was very afraid that or ashamed, you know, in case they found out her mother was a sex worker. And, you know, this sort of um, brought back uh, sort of, so, I mean, the, the way I could kind of relate to that story is that, you know, we, we all want to fit in. We all want to sort of feel normal. And uh, I remember at some point sort of being um, ashamed as a, as a teenager, thinking that, you know, um, my, my parents' house was not cool enough that, you know, so I didn't want some of my uh, friends from college to to come and visit me at home, for instance. So, you know, I, I of course, it was a very different setting. And, you know, in, uh, but... The, the fact that, you know, that, that we all experience these kinds of things, all of us in lesser doses, but uh, somebody like her was sort of ex- experiencing that on a more persistent basis. So it sort of gave me a certain um, connection or empathy to uh, what she felt. And uh, I think that sort of made me feel... Um, uh, more connected to this project, you know, and uh, the, the, the the that sort of initial interaction and the human dimension was something that kind of motivated me to get deeper into this project. I think we we all at some point or the other have sort of experienced crises of confidence and uh, not not feeling very good about ourselves. So I think for me there was sort of a you know uh, that kind of spurred my personal motivation to to do this project and got me more interested. Is there a top piece of advice that you would give to our listeners, um, especially those who are aspiring to become economists? So maybe current PhD students or um, listeners who are, you know, working in development currently? I think, you know, uh, after having done this for uh, a few years now, many years now, I, I think the one piece of advice I would probably give people is to say, you know, pick a topic to work on 
or a question to work on where you personally feel that you're interested in the answer. I think that brings an added depth and a certain dimension to the work that you do. So I'm not saying that people should not work on, um, you know, trade or, uh, you know, or, uh, topics which might, uh, I, of course, not everybody can work on psychology. But if you can sort of work on a topic where you feel that you have a personal motivation or a personal reason why that question is of interest to you, uh, I think that really adds um, a, a, an extra dimension and makes your research that much more both meaningful to yourself as a person, but therefore it also means that it motivates you more in terms of how deeply you think about it. So, you know, for example, I have known of people who have done research, let's say, on some particular disease because they had a sibling or they had a parent or, you know, somebody whom they felt connected to who had suffered from it. And I think that makes them better researchers on that particular uh, disease, for instance. Mm -hmm. So whatever that an analogy may be, for you as a, you know, as a PhD researcher in economics, bringing that personal dimension uh, is, is, will enrich your research. That's the piece of advice I would like to give. Thank you. And finally, um, you know, we are the Women in Econ and Policy organization. So can you tell us um, about three female social scientists or authors who have inspired you through your journey um, yeah. as an economist? Yeah, I, I should say that when I was a student in India, I had done very, very little economics. So many people, unlike many people who come from Delhi school, for instance, I had not uh, been exposed as much to economics when I was in India. So this was something that happened more after I came to graduate school. And But I, I will say that somebody like Dev Ki Jain, whom I'm you know, uh, speaking about, uh, someone from an Indian background, background, uh, whom I had the good fortune to meet at a gender conference um, uh, two years ago now, um, was somebody very inspiring just because, you know, somebody from an earlier generation and uh, the the so many different things and the range of work that uh, she had done at that time and, uh, you know, how widely traveled and, uh, and uh, the range of exposure and, and thinking that she, uh, and contributions she made was something inspiring. And in fact, I should confess that when I met her, I had not uh, read uh, her book, her uh, autobiography, which came out subsequently. And I have to say that I was sort of uh, was floored by some of the revelations in the book. And I think that uh, made me admire her strength even more. So this is uh, one person I found inspiring. You know, um, she was actually supposed to come to Oxford and uh, she had uh, said that she would meet me when she came here. Sadly, COVID happened after that and uh, it has not happened yet, but hopefully uh, it will still happen in the future. Um, another person I want to say as an economist whom I, whom I think of as being so cool is, is Claudia Golden. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I just think that um, she came into economics again at a time where giving a seat to a woman in a, a program like the Chicago Econ program was kind of being regarded as wasting a space. And, you know, she made that space her own. And uh, she's been doing this for what she has her PhD in 1967. And she's still going strong and doing great work. So I find somebody like that really inspiring, really pioneering. And in terms of authors, well, uh, there are there are a lot, lot many I could pick. But, uh, you know, in terms of looking for inspiration, one poem that I, I, I love to uh, read, reread, and in fact, I love to uh, actually see the video of her reciting it is Maya Angelou. 
uh, reciting the poem Still I Rise. You know, <laughs> it's a really sort of defiant uh, feminist anthem. And, uh, and I find it very uh, inspiring anytime I'm feeling uh, down on myself. It's uh, it's interesting that you talked about Devki Jain. I, I met her a very long time ago at a conference um, and mm-hmm. she was such a vibrant personality. And I think that's where I started to think about gender and kind of doing research on gender. So I completely agree. Yes, um, yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, Anandi, thank you so much for joining us. Um, This was very illuminating and we've all learned a lot. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you. You know, doing things like this also makes me reflect and look back. Of course, sometimes that makes you feel a little old, but I think it also uh, makes you take stock, which is always a good thing. So thank you for the opportunity. That brings us to the end of this episode. Before we sign off, We'd like to leave our listeners with some food for thought. What are some other psychological services that the governments can adopt to complement development initiatives and how can these be implemented? You can find the links to all the papers, books and articles mentioned in the show notes. Our episodes will be available on Apple, Spotify and other podcast mediums. Make sure to follow us on Twitter to get more updates on the next episode. Our Twitter handle is at WeConPol. Tell us what you thought about the show by writing to us at womeninpolicyecon at gmail.com. See you in the next episode.